Welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. Tonight we're continuing our reading of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. We're currently beginning chapter 30, Consequences. Mrs. Chester's fare was so very elegant and select that it was considered to be a great honor by the young ladies of the neighborhood to be invited to take a table, and everyone was much interested in the matter. Amy was asked, but Joe was not, which was fortunate for all parties, as her elbows were decidedly akimbo at this period of her life, and it took a good many hard knocks to teach her how to get on easily. The haughty, uninteresting creature was let severely alone, but Amy's talent and taste were duly complimented by the offer of the art table, and she exerted herself to prepare and secure appropriate and valuable contributions to it. Everything went on smoothly till the day before the fair opened, then there occurred one of the little skirmishes, which it is almost impossible to avoid, when some five and twenty women, old and young, with all their private piques and prejudices, tried to work together. May Chester was rather jealous of Amy, because the latter was a greater favorite than herself, and just at this time several trifling circumstances occurred to increase the feeling. Amy's dainty pen and ink work entirely eclipsed May's painted faces. That was one thorn. Then the all-conquering tutor had danced four times with Amy at a late party, and only once with May. That was thorn number two. But the chief grievance that rankled in her soul and gave an excuse for her unfriendly conduct was a rumor which some obliging gossip had whispered to her that the March girls had made fun of her at the Lambs. All the blame of this should have fallen upon Joe, for her naughty imitation had been too lifelike to escape detection, and the frolicsome Lambs had permitted the joke to escape. No hint of this had reached the culprits, however, and Amy's dismay can be imagined when, the very evening before the fair, as she was putting the last touches to her pretty table, Mrs. Chester, who of course resented the supposed ridicule of her daughter, said in a bland tone, but with a cold look, I find, dear, that there is some feeling among the young ladies about my giving this table to anyone but my girls. As this is the most prominent, and some say the most attractive table of all, and they are the chief getters-up of the fair, it is thought best for them to take this place. I'm sorry, but I know you are too sincerely interested in the cause to mind a little personal disappointment, and you shall have another table, if you like. Mrs. Chester fancied beforehand that it would be easy to deliver this little speech, but when it came time she found it rather difficult to utter it naturally, with Amy's unsuspicious eyes looking straight at her full of surprise and trouble. Amy felt that there was something behind this, but could not guess what, and said quietly, feeling hurt and showing that she did. Perhaps you had rather I took no table at all. Now, my dear, don't have any ill feeling, I beg. It's merely a matter of expediency, you see. My girls will naturally take the lead, and this table is considered their proper place. I think it is very appropriate to you, and feel very grateful for your efforts to make it so pretty. But we must give up our private wishes, of course, and I will see that you have a good place elsewhere. Wouldn't you like the flower table? 
The little girls undertook it, but they are discouraged. You could make a charming thing of it, and the flower table is always attractive, you know. Especially to gentlemen, added May, with a look which enlightened Amy as to one cause of her sudden fall from favor. She colored angrily, but took no other notice of that girlish sarcasm, and answered with unexpected amiability. It shall be as you please, Mrs. Chester. I'll give up my place here at once and attend to the flowers if you like. You can put your own things on your own table if you prefer, began May, feeling a little conscience-stricken as she looked at the pretty rags, the painted shells, and quaint illuminations Amy had so carefully made and so gracefully arranged. She meant it kindly, but Amy mistook her meaning and said quickly, Oh, certainly, if they are in your way. And sweeping her contributions into her apron pell-mell, she walked off, feeling that herself and her works of art had been insulted past forgiveness. Now she's mad. Oh, dear, I wish I hadn't asked you to speak, Mama, said May, looking disconsolately at the empty spaces on her table. Girls' quarrels are soon over, returned her mother, feeling a trifle ashamed of her own part in this one as well as she might. The little girls hailed Amy and her treasures with delight, which cordial reception somewhat soothed her perturbed spirit, and she fell to work determined to succeed florally, if she could not artistically. But everything seemed against her. It was late, and she was tired. Everyone was too busy with their own affairs to help her, and the little girls were only hindrances, for the deers fussed and chattered like so many magpies, making a great deal of confusion in their artless efforts to preserve the most perfect order. The evergreen arch wouldn't stay firm after she got it up, but wiggled and threatened to tumble down on her head when the hanging baskets were filled. Her best tile got a splash of water, which left a sepia tear on the cupid's cheek. She bruised her hands with hammering and got cold working in a draft, which last affliction filled her with apprehensions for the morrow. There was great indignation at home when she told her story that evening. Her mother said it was a shame, but told her that she had done right. Beth declared she wouldn't go to the fair at all, and Joe demanded why she didn't take all her pretty things and leave those mean people to get on without her. Because they are mean is no reason why I should be. I hate such things, and though I think I've a right to be hurt, I don't intend to show it. They will feel that more than angry speeches or huffy actions, won't they, Mormy? That's the right spirit, my dear. A kiss for a blow is always best, though it's not very easy to give it sometimes, said her mother. In spite of various very natural temptations to resent and retaliate, Amy adhered to her resolution all the next day, bent on conquering her enemy by kindness. She began well, thanks to a silent reminder that came to her unexpectedly, but most opportunely. As she arranged her table that morning, while the little girls were in the anteroom filling their baskets, she took up her pet production, a little book, the antique cover of which her father had found among his treasures, and in which, on leaves of vellum, she had beautifully illuminated the different texts. As she turned the pages, rich in dainty devices, with very pardonable pride, her eye fell upon one verse that made her stop and think. Framed in a brilliant scrollwork of scarlet, blue, and gold, 
with little spirits of goodwill helping one another up and down among the thorns and flowers were the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I ought, but I don't, thought Amy, as her eye went from the page to May's discontented face behind the big vases that could not hide the vacancies her pretty work had once filled. Amy stood a minute, turning the leaves in her hand, reading on each some sweet rebuke for all heart-burnings and uncharitableness of spirit. Many wise and true sermons are preached us every day by unconscious ministers in street, school, office, or home. Even a fair table may become a pulpit if it can offer the good and helpful words which are never out of season. Amy's conscience preached her a little sermon from that text, then and there, and she did what many of us do not always do, took the sermon to heart, and straight away put it in practice. A group of girls were standing about May's table, admiring the pretty things, and talking over the change of saleswomen. They dropped their voices, but Amy knew they were speaking of her, hearing one side of the story and judging accordingly. It was not pleasant, but a better spirit had come over her, and presently a chance offered for proving it. She heard May say sorrowfully, It's too bad, for there is no time to make other things, and I don't want to fill it up with odds and ends. The table was just complete then. Now it's spoiled. I dare say she'd put them back if you asked her, suggested someone. How could I after all the fuss, began May, but she did not finish, for Amy's voice came across the hall, saying pleasantly, "'You may have them, and welcome, without asking if you want them. "'I was just thinking I'd offer to put them back, "'for they belong to your table rather than mine. "'Here they are. Please take them, and forgive me "'if I was hasty in carrying them away last night.' "'As she spoke, Amy returned her contribution with a nod and a smile, "'and hurried away again, feeling that it was easier to do a friendly thing.' than it was to stay and be thanked for it. It was a long day and a hard one for Amy as she sat behind her table, often quite alone, for the other girls deserted very soon. Few cared to buy flowers in summer, and her bouquets began to droop long before night. The art table was the most attractive in the room. There was a crowd about it all day long, and the tenders were constantly flying to and fro with important faces and rattling money boxes. Amy often looked wistfully across, longing to be there, where she felt at home and happy, instead of in a corner with nothing to do. She did not go home till night, and then she looked so pale and quiet that they knew the day had been a hard one, though she made no complaint, and did not even tell what she had done. Her mother gave her an extra cordial cup of tea. Beth helped her dress and made a charming little wreath for her hair, while Joe astonished her family by getting herself up with unusual care and hinting darkly that the tables were about to be turned. "'Don't do anything rude, pray, Joe. I won't have any fuss made, so let it all pass and behave yourself,' begged Amy as she departed early, hoping to find a reinforcement of flowers to refresh her poor little table. "'I merely intend to make myself entrancingly agreeable to everyone I know and to keep them in your corner as long as possible.' "'Teddy and his boys will lend a hand, and will have a good time yet,' returned Joe, leaning over the gate to watch for Laurie. Presently the familiar tramp was heard in the dusk, and she ran out to meet him. "'Is that my boy?' 
as sure as this is my girl, and Lori tucked her hand under his arm with the air of a man whose every wish was gratified. Oh, Teddy, such doings, and Joe told Amy's wrongs with sisterly zeal. A flock of our fellows are going to drive over by and by, and I'll be hanged if I don't make them buy every flower she's got, and camp down before her table afterward, said Lori, espousing her cause with warmth. The flowers are not nice at all, Amy says, and the fresh ones may not arrive in time. I don't wish to be unjust or suspicious, but I shouldn't wonder if they never came at all. When people do one mean thing, they are likely to do another, observed Joe in a disgusted tone. Didn't Hayes give you the best out of our gardens? I told him to. I didn't know that. He forgot, I suppose, and as your grandpa was poorly, I didn't like to worry him by asking. Now, Joe, how could you think there was any need of asking? They're just as much yours as mine. Don't we always go halves and everything? began Lori in the tone that always made Joe turn thorny. Gracious, I hope not. Half of your things wouldn't suit me at all. But we mustn't stand philandering here. I've got to help Amy, so you go and make yourself splendid, and if you'll be so very kind as to let Hayes take a few nice flowers up to the hall, I'll bless you forever. Couldn't you do it now? asked Lori so suggestively that Joe shut the gate in his face with inhospitable haste and called through the bars, Go away, Teddy. I'm busy. Thanks to the conspirators, the tables were turned that night, for Hayes set up a wilderness of flowers with a lovely basket arranged in his best manner for a centerpiece. Then the March family turned out en masse, and Jo exerted herself to some purpose, for people not only came, but stayed, laughing at her nonsense, admiring Amy's taste, and apparently enjoying themselves very much. Laurie and his friends gallantly threw themselves into the breach, brought up the bouquets, encamped before the table, and made that corner the liveliest spot in the room. Amy was in her element now, and out of gratitude, if nothing more, was as sprightly and gracious as possible, coming to the conclusion about that time that virtue was its own reward after all. Jo behaved herself with exemplary propriety, and when Amy was happily surrounded by her guard of honor, Jo circulated about the hall, picking up various bits of gossip which enlightened her upon the subject of the Chester change of base. She reproached herself for her share of the ill feeling and resolved to exonerate Amy as soon as possible. She also discovered what Amy had done about the things in the morning and considered her a model of magnanimity. As she passed the art table, she glanced over it for her sister's things but saw no sign of them. Ducked out of sight, I dare say, thought Joe. Good evening, Miss Joe. How does Amy get on? asked May with a conciliatory air, for she wanted to show that she could also be generous. She has sold everything she had that was worth selling, and now she is enjoying herself. The flower table is always attractive, you know, especially to gentlemen. Joe couldn't resist giving that little slap, but May took it so meekly that she regretted it a minute after and fell to praising the great vases which still remained unsold. Is Amy's illumination anywhere about? I took a fancy to buy that for father, said Joe. Everything of Amy's sold long ago. I took care that the right people saw them, and they made a nice little sum of money for us, returned May, who had overcome sundry small temptations as well as Amy had that day. 
Much gratified, Joe rushed back to tell the good news, and Amy looked both touched and surprised by the report of May's word and manner. Now, gentlemen, I want you to go and do your duty by the other tables as generously as you have done by mine, especially the art table, she said, ordering out Teddy's own, as the girls called the college friends. Charge, Chester, charge, is the motto for that table, but do your duty like men, and you'll get your money's worth of art in every sense of the word, said the irrepressible Joe as the devoted phalanx prepared to take the field. By the vases, whispered Amy to Lori as a final heaping of coals of fire on her enemy's head. To May's great delight, Mr. Lawrence not only bought the vases, but pervaded the hall with one under each arm. The other gentlemen speculated with equal rashness in all sorts of frail trifles, and wandered helplessly about afterward burdened with wax flowers, painted bands, filigree portfolios, and other useful and appropriate purchases. Aunt Carol was there, heard the story, looked pleased, and said something to Mrs. March in a corner, which made the latter lady beam with satisfaction, and watch Amy with a face full of mingled pride and anxiety, although she did not betray the cause of her pleasure till several days later. The fair was pronounced a success, and when May bade Amy good night, she did not gush as usual, but gave her an affectionate kiss and a look which said, Forgive and forget. That satisfied Amy, and when she got home, she found the vases paraded on the parlor chimney piece with a great bouquet in each. The reward of merit for a magnanimous march, as Laurie announced with a flourish. You've a deal more principle and generosity and nobleness of character than I ever gave you credit for, Amy. You've behaved sweetly, and I respect you with all my heart, said Joe warmly, as they brushed their hair together late that night. Yes, we all do, and love her for being so ready to forgive. It must have been dreadfully hard after working so long and setting your heart on selling your own pretty things. I don't believe I could have done it as kindly as you did, added Beth from her pillow. My girls, you needn't praise me so. I only did as I'd be done by. You laugh at me when I say I want to be a lady, but I mean a true gentlewoman in mind and manners, and I try to do it as far as I know how. I can't explain exactly, but I want to be above the little meannesses and follies and faults that spoil so many women. I'm far from it now, but I do my best and hope in time to be what Mother is. Amy spoke earnestly, and Joe said with a cordial hug, I understand now what you mean, and I'll never laugh at you again. You are getting on faster than you think, and I'll take lessons of you in true politeness, for you've learned the secret, I believe. Try away, dearie. You'll get your reward some day, and no one will be more delighted than I shall. A week later, Amy did get her reward, and poor Joe found it hard to be delighted. A letter came from Aunt Carol, and Mrs. March's face was illuminated to such a degree when she read it that Joe and Beth, who were with her, demanded what the glad tidings were. Aunt Carol is going abroad next month and wants me to go with her, bursts in Joe, flying out of her chair in an uncontrollable rapture. No, dear, not you. It's Amy. Oh, mother, she's too young. It's my turn first. I've wanted it so long. It would do me so much good and be so altogether splendid. I must go. I'm afraid it's impossible, Joe. 
Aunt says Amy decidedly, and it's not fair for us to dictate when she offers such a favor. It's always so. Amy has all the fun, and I have all the work. It isn't fair. Oh, it isn't fair, cried Joe passionately. I'm afraid it's partly your own fault, dear. When Aunt spoke to me the other day, she regretted your blunt manners and too independent spirit, and here she writes, as if quoting something you had said, I planned at first to ask Joe, but as favors burden her and she hates French, I think I won't venture to invite her. Amy is more docile, will make a good companion for Flo, and receive gratefully any help the trip may give her. Oh, my tongue, my abominable tongue! Why can't I learn to keep it quiet? groaned Joe, remembering the words which had been her undoing. When she had heard the explanation of the quoted phrases, Mrs. March said sorrowfully, I wish you could have gone, but there is no hope of it at this time, so try to bear it cheerfully, and don't sadden Amy's pleasure by reproaches or regrets. I'll try, said Joe, winking hard as she knelt down to pick up the basket she had joyfully upset. I'll take a leaf out of her book and try not to only seem glad, but to be so, and not grudge her one minute of happiness. But it won't be easy, for it is a dreadful disappointment. Joe, dear, I'm very selfish, but I couldn't spare you, and I'm glad you're not going quite yet, whispered Beth, embracing her, basket and all, with such a clinging touch and loving face that Joe felt comforted in spite of the sharp regret that made her want to box her own ears and humbly beg Aunt Carol to burden her with this favor and see how gratefully she would bear it. By the time Amy came in, Joe was able to take her part in the family jubilation, not quite as heartily as usual, perhaps, but without repinings at Amy's good fortune. The young lady herself received the news as tidings of great joy, went about in a solemn sort of rapture, and began to sort her colors and pack her pencils that evening, leaving such trifles as clothes, money, and passports to those less absorbed in visions of art. It isn't a mere pleasure trip for me, girls, she said impressively, as she scraped her best palette. It will decide my career, for if I have any genius, I shall find it out in Rome, and will always do something to prove it. Suppose you haven't, said Joe, sewing away with red eyes at the new collars which were to be handed over to Amy. Then I shall come home and teach drawing for my living, replied the aspirant for fame, with philosophic composure but she made a wry face at the prospect and scratched away at her palette as if bent on vigorous measures before she gave up her hopes. No, you won't. You hate hard work, and you'll marry some rich man and come home to sit in the lap of luxury all your days, said Joe. Your predictions sometimes come to pass, but I don't believe that one will. I'm sure I wish it would, for if I can't be an artist myself, I should like to be able to help those who are, said Amy. "'said Joe with a sigh. "'If you wish, you'll have it, "'for your wishes are always granted. "'Mine, never.' "'Would you like to go?' said Amy, "'thoughtfully patting her nose with her knife. "'Rather. "'Well, in a year or two, I'll send for you, "'and we'll dig in the forum for relics "'and carry out all the plans we've made so many times. "'Thank you.' I'll remind you of your promise when that joyful day comes, if it ever does, returned Joe, accepting the vague but magnificent offer as gratefully as she could. 
There was not much time for preparation, and the house was in a ferment till Amy was off. Joe bore up very well till the last flutter of the blue ribbon vanished, when she retired to her refuge, the garret, and cried till she couldn't cry any more. Amy likewise bore up stoutly till the steamer sailed, then, just as the gangway was about to be withdrawn, it suddenly came over her that a whole ocean was soon to roll between her and those who loved her best, and she clung to Laurie, the last lingerer, saying with a sob, Oh, take care of them for me, and if anything should happen, I will, dear, I will, and if anything happens, I'll come and comfort you, whispered Laurie, little dreaming that he would be called upon to keep his word. Chapter 31, Our Foreign Correspondent, London Dearest people, here I really sit at a front window at the Bath Hotel, Piccadilly. It's not a fashionable place, but Uncle stopped here years ago and won't go anywhere else. However, we don't mean to stay long, so it's no great matter. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how I enjoy it all. I never can so I'll only give you bits out of my notebook, for I've done nothing but sketch and scribble since I started. I sent a line from Halifax when I felt pretty miserable, but after that I got on delightfully, seldom ill, on deck all day, with plenty of pleasant people to amuse me. Everyone was very kind to me, especially the officers. Don't laugh, Joe. Gentlemen really are very necessary aboard ship to hold on to or to wait upon one. It was all heavenly, but I was glad to see the Irish coast and found it very lovely, so green and sunny, with brown cabins here and there, ruins on some of the hills, and gentlemen's country seats in the valleys, with deer feeding in the parks. We only stopped at Liverpool a few hours. It's a dirty, noisy place, and I was glad to leave it. Uncle rushed out and bought a pair of dogskin gloves, some ugly thick shoes and an umbrella, and got shaved a la mutton chop the first thing. Then he flattered himself that he looked like a true Briton, but the first time he had the mud cleaned off his shoes, the little boot black knew that an American stood in front of them and said with a grin, There you are, sir. I've given him the latest Yankee shine. It amused Uncle immensely. The trip was like riding through a long picture gallery full of lovely landscapes. The farmhouses were my delight with thatched roofs, ivy up to the eaves, latticed windows, and stout women with rosy children at the doors. The very cattle looked more tranquil than ours as they stood knee-deep in clover, and the hens had a contented cluck, as if they never got nervous like the Yankee biddies. Such perfect color I never saw, the grass so green, sky so blue, grain so yellow, woods so dark, I was in a rapture all the way. So was Flo, and we kept bouncing from one side to the other, trying to see everything while we were whisking along at the rate of sixty miles an hour. Aunt was tired and went to sleep, but Uncle read his guidebook and wouldn't be astonished at anything. This is the way we went on, Amy flying up. Oh, that must be Kenilworth, that grey place among the trees. Flo darting to my window. How sweet. We must go there sometime, won't we, Papa? Uncle, calmly admiring his boots. No, my dear, not unless you want beer. That's a brewery. A pause.
pause when Flo cried out, Bless me, there's a gallows and a man going up. Where, where, shrieks Amy, staring out at two tall posts with a crossbeam and some dangling chains. A colliery, remarks Uncle with a twinkle of the eye. Here's a lovely flock of lambs all lying down, says Amy. See, Papa, aren't they pretty, added Flo sentimentally. Geese, young ladies, returns Uncle, in a tone that keeps us quiet till Flo settles down to enjoy the flirtations of Captain Cavendish, and I have the scenery all to myself. Of course it rained when we got to London, and there was nothing to be seen but fog and umbrellas. We rested, unpacked, and chopped a little between the showers. Aunt Mary got me some new things, for I came off in such a hurry I wasn't half ready. A white hat and blue feather, a muslin dress to match, and the loveliest mantle you ever saw. Shopping in Regent Street is perfectly splendid. Things seem so cheap. Nice ribbons, only sixpence a yard. I laid in a stock, but shall get my gloves in Paris. Doesn't that sound sort of elegant and rich? Today was fair, and we went to Hyde Park, close by, for we are more aristocratic than we look. The Duke of Devonshire lives near. I often see his footman lounging at the back gate, and the Duke of Wellington's house is not far off. Such sights as I saw, my dear. It was as good as punch, for there were fat dowagers rolling about in their red and yellow coaches, with gorgeous gemises and silk stockings and velvet coats up behind, and powdered coachmen in front. Smart maids with the rosiest children I ever saw, handmade girls looking half asleep, dandies in queer English hats and lavender kids lounging about, and tall soldiers in short red jackets and muffin caps stuck on one side, looking so funny I longed to sketch them. In the p.m. to Westminster Abbey, but don't expect me to describe it. That's impossible, so I'll only say it was sublime. This evening we are going to see Fetcher, which will be an appropriate end to the happiest day of my life. Midnight. It's very late but I can't let my letter go in the morning without telling you what happened last evening. Who do you think came in as we were at tea? Laurie's English friends, Fred and Frank Vaughan. I was so surprised, for I shouldn't have known them but for the cards. Both are tall fellows with whiskers, Fred very handsome in the English style, and Frank much better, for he only limps slightly and uses no crutches. They had heard from Laurie where we were going to be, and came to ask us to their house, but Uncle won't go, so we shall return the call and see them as we can. They went to the theatre with us, and we did have such a good time, for Frank devoted himself to Flo, and Fred and I talked over past, present, and future fun as if we had known each other all our days. Tell Beth Frank asked for her, and was sorry to hear of her ill health. Fred laughed when I spoke of Joe and sent his respectful compliments to the big hat. Neither of them had forgotten Camp Lawrence or the fun we had there. What ages ago it seems, doesn't it? I long to see you all, and in spite of my nonsense am, as ever, your loving, Amy. Paris Dear girls, In my last I told you about our London visit, how kind the Vaughns were, and what pleasant parties they made for us. I enjoyed the trips to Hampton Court and the Kensington Museum more than anything else, for at the Hampton I saw Raphael's cartoons, and at the museum rooms full of pictures by Turner, Lawrence, Reynolds, Hogarth, and the other great 
creatures. The day at Richmond Park was charming, for we had a regular English picnic, and I had more splendid oaks and groups of deer than I could copy, also heard a nightingale, and saw larks go up. We did London to our heart's content, thanks to Fred and Frank, and we are sorry to go away, for though English people are slow to take you in, when they once make up their minds to do it, they cannot be outdone in hospitality, I think. The Vaughns hope to meet us in Rome next winter, and I shall be dreadfully disappointed if they don't, for Grace and I are great friends, and the boys are very nice fellows, especially Fred. Well, we were hardly settled there when he turned up again, saying he had come for a holiday, and was going to Switzerland. Aunt looked sober at first, but he was so cool about it that she couldn't say a word, and now we get on nicely, and are very glad he came, for he speaks French like a native, and I don't know what we should do without him. Uncle doesn't know ten words, and insists on talking English very loud, as if it would make people understand him. Aunt's pronunciation is old-fashioned, and Flo and I, though we flattered ourselves that we knew a good deal, find we don't, and are very grateful to have Fred to do the parlay vooing, as Uncle calls it. The Palais Royal is a heavenly place, so full of bijouterie and lovely things that I'm nearly distracted because I can't buy them. Fred wanted to get me some, but of course I didn't allow it. Then the boys in Champs-Élysées are très magnifique. I've seen the imperial family several times, the emperor an ugly, hard-looking man, the empress pale and pretty, but dressed in bad taste, I thought, purple dress, green hat, and yellow gloves. Little Nap is a handsome boy, who sits chatting to his tutor and kisses his hand to the people as he passes in his four-horse barouche, with postilions in red satin jackets and a mounted guard before and behind. Next week we are off to Germany and Switzerland, and as we shall travel fast, I shall only be able to give you hasty letters. I keep my diary and try to remember correctly and describe clearly all that I see and admire, as Father advised. It is good practice for me, and with my sketchbook will give you a better idea of my tour than these scribbles. Adieu. I embrace you tenderly. Ultra Amy Heidelberg My dear Mama, Having a quiet tour before we leave for Bern, I'll try to tell you what has happened, for some of it is very important, as you will see. The sale of the Rhine was perfect, and I just sat and enjoyed it with all my might. Get Father's old guidebooks and read about it. I haven't words beautiful enough to describe it. At Koblenz we had a lovely time, for some students from Bonn, with whom Fred got acquainted on the boat, gave us a serenade. It was a moonlight night, and about one o'clock Flo and I were waked by the most delicious music under our windows. We flew up and hid behind the curtains, but sly peeps showed us Fred and the students singing away down below. It was the most romantic thing I ever saw, the river, the bridge of boats, the great fortress opposite, moonlight everywhere, and music fit to melt a heart of stone. When they were done, we threw down some flowers and saw them scramble for them, kiss their hands to the invisible ladies, and go laughing away to smoke and drink beer, I suppose. Next morning, Fred showed me one of the crumpled flowers in his vest pocket, and looked very sentimental. 
I laughed at him and said I didn't throw it, but flow, which seemed to disgust him, for he tossed it out of the window and turned sensible again. I'm afraid I'm going to have trouble with that boy. It begins to look like it. The baths at Nassau were very gay. So was Baden-Baden, where Fred lost some money, and I scolded him. He needs someone to look after him when Frank is not with him. Kate said once she'd hoped he'd marry soon, and I quite agree with her that it would be well for him. Now comes the serious part, for it happened here, and Fred has just gone. He has been so kind and jolly that we all got quite fond of him. I never thought of anything but a traveling friendship till the serenade night. Since then I've begun to feel that the moonlight walks, balcony talks, and daily adventures were something more to him than fun. I haven't flirted, Mother, truly, but remembered what you said to me and have done my very best. I can't help it if people like me. I don't try to make them, and it worries me if I don't care for them, though Joe says I haven't got any heart. Now I know Mother will shake her head, and the girls say, Oh, the mercenary little wretch, but I've made up my mind, and if Fred asks me, I shall accept him, though I'm not madly in love. I like him, and we get on comfortably together. He is handsome, young, clever enough, and very rich, ever so much richer than the Lawrences. I don't think his family would object, and I should be very happy, for they are all kind, well-bred, generous people, and they like me. Fred, as the eldest twin, will have the estate, I suppose, and such a splendid one it is. A city house in a fashionable street, not so showy as our big houses, but twice as comfortable and full of solid luxury, such as English people believe in. I like it, for it's genuine. I've seen the plate, the family jewels, the old servants, and pictures of the country place, with its park, great house, lovely grounds, and fine horses. Oh, it would be all I should ask, and I'd rather have it than any title such as girls snap up so readily and find nothing behind. I may be mercenary, but I hate poverty, and I don't mean to bear it a minute longer than I can help. One of us must marry well. Meg didn't, Joe won't, Beth can't yet, so I shall, and make everything okay all round. I wouldn't marry a man I hated or despised. You may be sure of that, and though Fred is not my model hero, he does very well, and in time I should get fond enough of him if he was very fond of me, and let me do as I liked. So I've been turning the matter over in my mind last week, for it was impossible to help seeing that Fred liked me. He said nothing, but the little things showed it. He never goes with Flo, always gets on my side of the carriage, table, or promenade, looks sentimental when we are alone, and frowns at anyone else who ventures to speak to me. Yesterday at dinner, when an Austrian officer stared at us, then said something to his friend, a rackish-looking baron, about Ein wunderschönes Blanchen. Fred looked fierce as a lion, and cut his meat so savagely it nearly flew off his plate. He isn't one of the cool, stiff Englishmen, but rather peppery, for he has scotch blood in him, as one might guess from his bonny blue eyes. Well, last evening we went up to the castle about sunset, at least all of us but Fred, who was to meet us there after going to the post restaurant for letters. We had a charming time poking about the ruins, the vaults where the monster tomb is, and the beautiful gardens made by the elector long ago for his English wife. 
I liked the great terrace best, for the view was divine, so while the rest went to see the rooms inside, I sat there trying to sketch the grey stone lion's head on the wall, with scarlet woodbine sprays hanging around it. I felt as if I'd got into a romance, sitting there, watching the Neckar rowing through the valley, listening to the music of the Austrian band below, and waiting for my lover like a real storybook girl. I had a feeling that something was going to happen, and I was ready for it. I didn't feel blushy or quaky, but quite cool and only a little excited. By and by, I heard Fred's voice, and then he came hurrying through the great arch to find me. He looked so troubled that I forgot all about myself and asked what the matter was. He said he'd just got a letter begging him to come home, for Frank was very ill. So he was going at once on the night train and only had time to say goodbye. I was very sorry for him, and disappointed for myself, but only for a minute because he said, as he shook hands, and said it in a way that I could not mistake, I shall soon come back. You won't forget me, Amy. I didn't promise, but I looked at him, and he seemed satisfied, and there was no time for anything but messages and goodbyes, for he was off in an hour, and we all miss him very much. I know he wanted to speak, but I think, from something he once hinted, that he had promised his father not to do anything of the sort yet for a while, for he is a rash boy, and the old gentleman dreads a foreign daughter-in-law. We shall soon meet in Rome, and then, if I don't change my mind, I'll say, yes, thank you, when he says, will you please. Of course, this is all very private, but I wished you to know what is going on. Don't be anxious about me. Remember, I am your prudent Amy, and be sure I will do nothing rashly. Send me as much advice as you like. I'll use it if I can. I wish I could see you for a good talk, Marmy. Love and trust me. Ever yours, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, Please consider supporting to help me improve the quality, and also to help me keep up my three-episode-a-week schedule. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature. Please also follow me on Instagram at relaxing literature, and on Twitter at relaxing lit ASMR to leave your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.